You know, it's funny, um, the song they played this morning, uh, Days of Elijah. So I don't have a lot of time to share stories with you this morning. I wish that I could have just made a whole sermon of somehow making meaning of ridiculous things that happened the last 12 years, but I don't know if I could have put much to that. However, there is one story in particular. Every time I see that, hear, hear that song, Days of Elijah, I can't help but forget when I was leading worship here a long, long time ago. And we were going to do the key change, right? And what had happened was the band modulated a half a step, but the vocals, well, they modulated a whole step. And so, like, we couldn't figure out what was wrong. We just knew that it was terribly wrong. <laughs> and to everyone's credit, especially the congregation, because they didn't just leave at that point, we just plowed through. Like, somehow... I think that we had some sort of miraculous event where we were able to maintain our wrong singing key with the wrong playing key, and we just kept going, and it created these notes and intonate, like, it was awful. <laughs> it was really, really bad. I feel like uh, every time I hear that song, I cannot help but think about that event in that time. You know, Memorial Day is an interesting uh, holiday. We say happy Memorial Day, right? That's got to be an oxymoron. Um, my brother who's in the army, we, he was here the other day to pick up my truck to drive to Cincinnati and, uh, we were out and someone said to him because he had his, uh, I don't, what do you guys call them? Your, your BTUs, your daily work uniform. And, uh, they said, oh, happy Memorial day. And, and my brother said, did, did I die? <laughs> I was like, oh no, but the sentiment is appreciated, right? I mean, like, the sentiment is, is appreciated in the sense that what my brother and my other military friends have told me, that though sometimes there seems to be a little bit of a, a lack of understanding maybe in what Memorial Day is all about, it's still appreciated to be appreciated. However, those individuals who are in the military really know who the real heroes are. Because as uh, Major Winters from the first Airborne from Band of Brothers, uh, Ambrose, if you've read or know any of that, uh, at one point he read a letter, a uh, documentary I was watching, and he read a letter from his grandson that said, uh, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? And he said, no, but I served with a unit of heroes. The heroes they saw were the ones who never made it back. It's interesting that we don't seem to always completely grasp what something like a holiday like that is about. I think it's probably really because we just aren't educated about what it's really about anymore. I don't really know what they're teaching in schools anymore. My son's in high school. All I know the other day is he had to learn how to defend himself because he was punched in the eye by a fellow student. Um, but it's interesting because I think that stuff like Memorial Day is an opportunity for us to remember how we got to where we are. Because if it weren't for Memorial Day, if it weren't for the sacrifices of those men and women who served to the very end, gave the greatest count of measure, the, the very, their very lives, if it weren't for that, we would not be where we are. And the same can be said for the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is interesting because I think the story is one that would have been told around a fire. Grandpa, can you tell me about Ruth again? And those stories would have been continually passed on so everybody would know where they've come from and how they got to where they are. The first week when we started this series, we talked a little bit about chapter one and we introduced our cast of characters. There was a man named Elimelech. He had a wife named Naomi. They had two sons named Malan and Chilion. After some unpredictable and unforeseen circumstances, Elimelech dies and Naomi is left as a widow with only her two sons. 
Her two sons take Moabite women as wives, one named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and one named Ruth. After about 10 years or so of what we can only assume was just typical normal life of the time, tragedy once again strikes, and now both of her sons die also. And now Orpah, Naomi, and Ruth have all been left as widows. And Orpah leaves Naomi by her request, but Ruth stays by her side with the famous words that we know well when she says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. And that week, we talked a little bit about our own circumstances and how we view God in our lives. And we asked the question, how big is God in your eyes? Because, of course, remember, God never changes. God never changes. But sometimes, sometimes our view of God might change depending on the circumstances that we're in. And we asked the question, do you see him at work in your lives even when things are bad, even when the circumstances are difficult. The second week of the series, we looked at chapter two and our cast of characters grew. And we met our hero, the hero of our story, Boaz. Now, Ruth goes to glean or to collect grain and she's, con- she's confronted by a man by the name of Boaz. And that week, if you recall, we learned that Boaz was a good, upstanding, well-respected, wealthy businessman and he takes great interest in Ruth. And he sees that she is kept safe and treated well in the fields as she gleans. But there's more. Because we find out that Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech. That was Naomi's husband who had died. And he could bring honor back to the family. And we introduce this kind of foreign concept, this idea of the guardian or kinsman redeemer. Something that we're not really too familiar with these days, but was a biblical mandate at the time. Now this person had many roles, but one of them would have been to reclaim this land as a close relative of Elimelech so that Ruth would be able to hold on to her land and the family would be able to maintain control of that land. So the plot thickens. And that week we also talked about this Hebrew word chesed. Now, it just so happens that one of the tattoos I have is actually the Hebrew word chesed across the top of my back. And I asked Kelly if it would be okay this morning if I took my shirt off and showed you guys. And she, uh, she insisted that even though it's my last week, I probably shouldn't do that. Uh, so anyway, it was a brother thing. My brother and I got, because one of the many meanings of that word would be a servant. And we did a brother thing. And so we got the word chesed on our backs, which to us represented servants of God. That week, we asked the question, can we, as followers of Christ, love people without reason? Because remember, we defined this word chesed as love without reason, love that just didn't seem to make sense. And the question we ask is, can we do that? Can we do that as believers with a love that seems to make no sense whatsoever? And last week, we looked at chapter three of Ruth, and we learned that Ruth takes a calculated risk and reveals to Boaz who she is and what her intentions were. She and Naomi needed a redeemer, and Boaz was the man to do it. But we also find that Boaz was not the only close relative. There was somebody who was actually even closer. And so that is where we're going today. Today we're going to take a look at this Redeemer concept again. We're going to look at the story as it carries on in chapter 4. I want to take a look at Boaz and what it takes to be a Redeemer. And also, I want to talk about what this means for us today. So we're going to read through chapter 4 together, and as we go... We are going to explore what the Word reveals to us. So read with me. Um, I'm going to read from this. This is a, yep. So here we go. Chapter 4. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative 
of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So he said to him, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now, right away, I want to set the scene. So in every city, there was a city gate. And at the city gate, it was very common for business to take place at the city gate. And Boaz sees this close relative, the person who he knows who could be the redeemer, and he says to him, come and sit down. And I found a couple photos. Uh, This photo is actually what a city gate would have looked like. So if you look, sorry over here, but if you look here, this is the city. This is on the way in. And what they would have is benches literally on the way into the city so that you can conduct business at the city gates. I found a second photo of uh, maybe an artist rendering of what this might have looked like. So you see the city, and you see all this business being taken care of and all this business being conducted outside of the city gates. And there's some ruins even where it reveals this also. Um, So you can see the actual areas where people would have sat in the city over here. So this is a very common thing at the time. And I was talking to a good friend of mine and a fellow scholar this week, uh, Ryan McGee, and he actually had done a paper recently about the synagogue and how actually this was the beginning of the synagogue. Because after uh, several years, they stopped putting these seats outside the city gates because it became unprotected. They got rid of the seats and they still needed a place to conduct their business. And so they began a building, and that became the synagogue. They would conduct business in there as well as have um, their religious ceremonies and everything else taking place there. So you can see there's places to sit there, and Boaz sees this man, and he says, come, have a seat, and he gathers 10 elders because that's what you did to conduct your business, and he sees this nameless man. Now, there's a couple interesting facts about this nameless man because it says in our translation, and depending on your translation, it might read differently. It says, friend, sit down here. Some versions might say the one, the one relative or something like that. But the fact that the man remains nameless is actually interesting to our story because the Hebrew word here is called peloni, which literally means so-and-so. So when he sees this guy, it would have been, like, in, in modern, uh, if we could say vernacular or modern language, modern tongue, it would be if I saw, yo, bro, my man, come on, my man. So, like, the reality is, is we have this word translated as friend, but we're overstating. Boaz knew who this man was, but they weren't friends. The word here, it's interesting because he says, Elimelech, our brother, and this word brother actually means uh, if one of the... Two had to have a parent from the other. So in other words, uh, Elimelech might have had the mom in, in, in similar with the man. Uh, maybe Boaz had the dad. But th- they were family, but not close family. And so when we talk about this and he says, hey, friend, I think we get this concept or idea of this guy wanting to kind of work with Boaz. Like there was a relationship that existed there, but there wasn't. So Boaz kind of just says, my man, you got to come over here. We've got to take care of this business. And so it leads to an interesting point also that the author, whoever the author was of this, didn't think that it mattered who this person's name was. They just didn't include it. It's possible that it was because they thought that in not redeeming the land as the kinsman redeemer, that they did not fulfill their responsibility and they didn't deserve to be mentioned. That's possible. But it's just very strange that the man is not given a name This kinsman-redeemer concept that would have been given to this man was not fulfilled. So Boaz gathers this man and ten elders, and then we get to what most commentaries call Boaz's first speech. And we read this in verses 4, 3, and 4. It says, Then they said, I'm sorry, then he, Boaz, said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. 
So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that you may not, for I can be the one to redeem it. There is no one other than you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, this is interesting, he says, I will redeem it. So Boaz presents the situation to this man, and his response is, well, sure, I'll redeem the land. And this is the point, if this is a soap opera, where they would zoom in on somebody's shocked face and the music would get very minor and dramatic and they'd cut to commercial. Because right now we're thinking, well, hold on, wait, 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 what just happened? And you can imagine probably if Ruth would have heard this, that she would have been terrified. Because the reality is, she was anticipating and expecting Boaz to be the one to redeem the land so that he could marry her. So this is a very interesting turn of events, but Boaz had an ace up his sleeve. And we read in verse 4, 5 and 6, it says this, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Then the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Whoa, what just happened? Like, he presented the land option. The guy said, I'm in, I'll take the land. And then all of a sudden he said, but don't forget, you're also going to have to take Ruth because Ruth is a part of the deal. It's a package deal. And the man says, I, I can't do that. But why? This is interesting. He says that he can't do it because it would jeopardize his own inheritance. And we've already discussed what a smart and wise businessman Boaz was. But we see the reality of that here. Because the way he presents the situation, once the man agrees that he will take the land, Boaz tells him that he'll also have to take Ruth. And he says, Ruth, the Moabitess. Now, this is very interesting because what this means is, is if that man would have taken Ruth and the land, the land would then be inherited by the son, whoever was born to Ruth, who would have been a Moabite. What Boaz does not tell him is that Ruth has claimed Yahweh as her God, that she has claimed Naomi as her mother and her family as her family. Ruth essentially has converted to become an Israelite. Her God now is Yahweh, but he doesn't give him that information. Do you think that Boaz was a wise businessman? He certainly was. He knew exactly what he was doing, and of course, to be clear, God knew exactly what he was doing, but we'll get to that. Now, once all this takes place, we read something very interesting in verse 7. It says, Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the author of the book takes a little aside. They say, let me explain this really quick, is what the author says. And they explain the tradition that the reader may not have been familiar about, and it explains it. Now, in the times that I've been able to preach, in the times that I've been able to share with you guys, I have said often that I believe that the Bible was not written to us, but it was certainly written for us. And I want to say that one more time, just to be clear. It's not semantics. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. This verse, I believe, is evidence of that very thing. Whoever wrote the book of Ruth knew that the person reading it would not be familiar with this tradition. 
They had to take a moment to explain it to this person because this was not written to this person, but it was written for that person. They needed an understanding of exactly what was going on at this point because they would not have understood. This author is affirming the fact that they know that the reader probably was not going to understand what's happening. I think it's funny that I believe that we learned how to study the Bible best in high school. I think that our English classes actually prepared us best to study God's Word. Because when we're in English class, and for some of you it might have been quite a while ago, for me it seems like an eternity ago, they teach you to research the author. Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? Why were they writing it? What was going on in the culture at the time? We go to English class and we're, we're made mad by everything they want, information about a specific piece of literature. But why don't we take that to the Bible? We read the Bible and we just see it as a collection of stories and we think, oh, that's nice. It's nice, but what you have to understand is there are culturally significant things going on here. There are things that are taking place that we need to better understand that so we can understand exactly what the author or the writer of the book was saying so we can understand the historical, cultural context so then we can begin to truly understand what exactly was taking place. When we read the Bible, and if we don't do our due diligence as scholars of the Bible, as my fellow theologians, if you do not take that time to truly understand what's going on with a book, it's a tragedy. You're going to get the wrong things out of it if you don't really know what it was for and who it was to. But I guarantee you that though, especially in the New Testament, when we read the letters of Paul and when we read all of these amazing stories of, of epistles and the development of the church, if that was not written to us, and it certainly was written for us, there is something there. God is speaking to you through his word, but you have to come at it from the right perspective and from the right angle. Otherwise, we're just doing it a great disservice. I just wanted to be sure one more time to share that with you since it's my last. Guys, study the word. Don't just read the stories. They're great stories, but there's so much more going on here if you really dig deep. And believe me, there are diamonds at the bottom if you just dig deeper. So, this is all taking place, and this is all happening, and they make this exchange, and this guy walks away with one sandal on, and in verses 4, 8 to 15, we read this. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought this land from Naomi and all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilean and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers and from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were there in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth and Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by, his young, by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed the women. This is kind of an interesting point. We don't have time for this. There's a huge cultural implication here, but next time. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your life and a sustainer in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So this is interesting. At the end, this is very, I thought this was really funny in my opinion because basically the guy, I think, realizes that he had been bested by Boaz. 
because he was excited probably about acquiring the land, right? Oh, great, more land. That works for me. But then he tells her about Ruth, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't do that. And in the end, the guy just says, take it. Just take it. Almost in anger, frustration, because he knew that Boaz had bested him. I think it's a wonderful moment in this story. The last few book, uh, verses of the book of Ruth, Ruth, in my opinion, is the actual point. Like, we read the entire story of Ruth, and it's amazing, and there's great stuff to be taken from it. But this, I think, is the whole point. In verses 16 to 22, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and Ram to Amminadab, and to Amminadab was born Nation, and Nation to Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and Boaz to Obed, and Obed was born to Jesse, and Jesse to David, and from the line of David came who? That's the point. That's the point. We get this amazing story, this amazing story of love and redemption and care and concern. But if you look at sequence, and there's a little bit of conversation and discussion about where this takes place in the canon of the scriptures, because some people say it happens during the age of the judges, and some people said it happened after, because we place it after judges, right before First and Second Samuel, when David does become the king. And it's a point where people are saying, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we came from the judges to now we have David? And so the author of this story said, well, let me tell you the story. This is how we got to where we are. But there's so much great information in here. And the question, of course, that we have to consider is this. If this was not written to us but for us, what can we find in this particular chapter that is for us? What applies to us? Now, one of the many possible elements that we can draw from this story is like Ruth and Naomi, of course, we too need to be redeemed. We as people who live in a world filled with sin and participate in sin are in trouble and we need to be set free. We need a redeemer. But there are certain elements of redemption that we can gather from this story that we also find in our redeemer, Christ. So as I was preparing the message this week, actually it was last week because I was packing this week, but as I was preparing the message, I came across a great list from a book called Opening Up Ruth by Jonathan Prime that explains what he believes is what it takes to be one of God's redeemers. He said, first is this, redemption is costly. Redemption is costly. When Boaz waits for that relative to come and he presents his case to him and he's gonna take the deal, but what happens? Once he presents the fullness of the deal, the man passes because it's gonna cost him too much. He says, I can't do it. It's gonna cost me my inheritance. I am not willing to pay that price. Now, that, of course, should come as no surprise to those who God provides as redeemers because when we accept Christ, we know how much that cost him. But Boaz did this in four ways also. We have to realize that as Boaz was preparing to be the redeemer, he took four steps. One, he did it willingly. Boaz had no hesitation in taking on this responsibility. His aim was to settle the matter that day. If we roll back just a little bit to verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3 of Ruth, they're having a conversation about what's going to happen. And then immediately at that point, that's when Boaz goes to the city gate. I'm going to do this for you. I'm not going to do it for you next week, not in a month, not in two weeks. I'm going to do it right now. Boaz did it willingly and settled, him, settled everything that day. But he also did it purposefully. All of Boaz's actions are very deliberate and thought through. He did not leave anything to chance. He made sure that everything was done properly. 
by calling the elders, by making sure the business was done appropriately. He did everything purposefully. He did it faithfully. And all that he did that day, he was willing to fulfill his promise to Ruth that he made the night before, that I will go to this man and I will redeem. He did it faithfully and also he did it unselfishly. It was not for his own benefit, but it was to maintain the name of Elimelech and that family that he did this. Now, every time we gather around the Lord's table, we remember the costly act of redemption that, accomplished, that was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and how he willingly bore the cost of the redemption of all sinners for all time. With the Lord Jesus, there was no sense of his arm being twisted or of him being reluctant of doing something against his will. He willingly paid the price for our redemption with his blood. In 1 Peter 18 and 19, it says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus paid the price purposefully. The Gospels reveal to us that the cross overshadowed his whole life. He set his face toward Jerusalem, traveling there with resolution and determination, arriving at just the right time at Passover. And through his death, he might pay the price necessary for the redemption of all sinners. He performed that costly act faithfully. He died in accordance with God's promise to redeem all people. And he did so unselfishly. What Christ did on the cross that day had nothing to do with benefiting him. Christ died on the cross for everyone else. What he did that day had nothing to do with benefiting him. It was for the benefit of all mankind. But that's not all it takes to be a redeemer. The second thing is this. Redemption is also a legal transaction. Now, this sounds strange to us because we think, again, we come to the, ooh, hey. Uh, We come to the Bible and we think to ourselves, oh, what an amazing story of Christ's love. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad to be saved. It's true. But what you have to understand is we're dealing with a holy and righteous God. There was a legal transaction that took place on the day that Christ died on the cross. Something took place there that had to take place so that we could be redeemed. Now, the town gate was the place where legal business was transacted, and Boaz deliberately gathered the elders and witnesses there. The narrator provides the necessary background information when he explains that early times in Israel, for the redemption of the transfer of property to become legal, one took off his sandals. So this is kind of a funny concept. You think about this, they're at the city gate. The guy finally says, fine, take the land. He takes the land, and he's like, can I, can I have your sandal? And he gives him the sandal. So now you got this guy going around town, you know, like, but that meant something. When people saw somebody walking from the city gate without a sandal on, they knew that business had been done. They knew that something significant had taken place. And that's why they did this. They did this legal transaction. But also, Boaz announced to the witnesses that all gathered that a legal transaction did take place. He said, you've all seen it. I gathered you all here. Everybody's, we're good, right? Everybody's witnesses, we're good. And the elders, of course, say, yeah, we're good. You're good. You did it right. In his sovereignty, God could have made things much simpler. I mean, the the story could have been made a lot more straightforward if Boaz was the nearest kinsman. But God does nothing without purpose or reason. Given its connection with the bigger plan of redemption, it would seem that the reason of this twist in the plot is to show that for redemption to take place, the law must be satisfied, not bypassed. That is certainly true when we think of the redemption that God provided through the cross. 
The Bible is clear that all of humanity is a mess because of our sinfulness. The law of God demands that sin and rebellion must be punished in accordance with God's justice. The price of the wages of sin is death. In his perfection and righteousness, God cannot overlook sin. He can't. The just and right demands of law must be met, and that is exactly what happened as the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. In his perfection, he died to satisfy the just demands of God's law in the place of others, in the place of me and you. Through the cross, the law was not bypassed. It was satisfied. On the cross, a legal transaction took place, and it was the satisfaction of the demands of God and his law that Jesus proclaimed from the cross that day. It is finished. The deal is done. And by the way, I know Sometimes we've gotten away from using big words in Sunday morning. We call this a Sunday morning word, but you, you guys know this is, this is what we talk about when we're talking about justification. The word justification, to be justified, when we remove the cultural and the significant context of that word, we remove the significance of the fact that a law was in place and that law had to be satisfied. We had to be justified. We had to be turned into a new position. So we were sinful, we're going this way in sin, we meet Jesus, and now we're going the other way. Justification is the process by which Jesus turns our lives around. But it was in doing so because he had to fulfill the law of God. He had to. If not Christ, it would have been you and I. Thank God for Jesus. Lastly, redemption is transforming. From the time that Boaz redeemed her, Ruth had a new identity, a new position, and a new status. Remember, the elders of the gate said this, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring of the Lord gives you from this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah. Now, up to this point, Ruth had always been referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. She was a Moabite, emphasizing that she was a foreigner, but now she was Ruth the wife of Boaz, soon to be the mother of Obed. She was now a redeemed person with a special part to play in God's redemptive purpose. The hopes expressed by the words of the elders in verse 11 and 12 are significant here. Rachel and Leah were both wives of Jacob, the mother of the tribes of Israel. Tamar, like Ruth, was a foreigner. The people of Bethlehem were descendants of her union with Judah. Ruth would be like Rachel, Leah, and Tamar, significant in God's plan. By the way, I always think this is interesting. Just a little nugget. You know what Bethlehem means? The place of bread. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem? Where the bread of life came? It's interesting. I think that God doesn't do anything without purpose. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that these high hopes were not vain hopes. Obed was the father of Jesse, who had eight sons, the youngest of whom was David, from whom the Lord Jesus Christ would descend. The significance of both Tamar and Ruth is confirmed by their inclusion in the genealogy with which Matthew starts his gospel. If you remember, if we go to Gospel of Matthew, where he does his genealogy, he includes these women as significant parts of the plan and the story of God completing his plan of redemption. Redemption transforms those who are redeemed. When we become followers of Christ, we find that we have a new identity. We become a part of the bride of Christ. We discover that we are not our own but we've been bought with a price. Every believer becomes a part of the family of Ruth and Boaz through the Lord Jesus. 
through whom God continues to fulfill his redemptive purposes and plans in this world, even today. Now, as we do, maybe some next steps. And I was thinking through some next steps for this particular sermon. But I thought, well, we could do that. But I thought really, given the cultural context of this story, I think, as I said before, that this story would have been shared all at one time. So we would have sat around a fire and we would have shared the story of Ruth and Boaz and redemption. How did we get to David? And so I wanted to take a look back one more time at the questions we had for you each week through this series, because I think every one of these is a profound moment in this story as far as what took place. So first, remember, the first week we asked, how big is God in your eyes? And I would ask you, how big is God in your eyes? Even amidst difficult, trying circumstances. Because the reality is, is what we see here is we see God's redemptive plan working through Ruth and through Naomi, even amidst these circumstances that were unpredictable, difficult, challenging, just terrible circumstances, but God was continually, do you believe that? Do you believe in your life, given wherever you are right now in your situation in life, good or bad? Do you believe that God is actively involved in your life right now? Do you believe that he's big enough to orchestrate your story? Do you believe that there's something very specific that God has for you and that he's just waiting for you to come along? We also asked, can we as followers of Christ love people without reason? And this is a big one. This word chesed, a love that makes no sense. You know, the Bible talks about the fact that as a church, as God's people, we are supposed to be not in the culture. We're supposed to be defining. We're supposed to be countercultural. Now, I can't think of something more countercultural these days than just loving people. I mean, we're getting ready to move to China, and in China, there's not much relationship life going on. My my number one goal right now, I've told Kelly this, uh, there's lots of restaurants that we frequent. In fact, we went to Kumo. Uh, if you like sushi, go and tell them Adam sent you. Um, Kumo over right by Lucky's across the street from Chili's, if you want the address. <laughs> and these guys, Adam, it's so great to see you. Hey, guys, we're leaving next week. We're, we're moving to China. Oh, man, China, that's amazing. And half of them are Chinese, and so we started exchanging QR codes through WeChat and everything because they want us to contact them. It was so exciting because we've been there so many times. They know us by name. I know Daniel by name and the manager and the owner there by name because we go there all the time. That doesn't happen in China. If you're not a part of someone's family, you're really just a transaction for business. If you go into a restaurant, you go into that restaurant, and then you just sit down, you pay, you eat, and you leave. In fact, I asked Andy while we were there, what do I say if I want to ask someone their name? And he said, you don't. You don't. You might say, hey, friend, but you don't ask someone their name. It's just not important. So my goal right now, amongst other things, is to find three restaurants that we can frequent enough that I'll get to be able to call someone by name. Because I think that would be cool. Because that's what, who I am in God. I just love knowing people and being involved in their lives, and I want to encourage them. But the funny thing is, is even in America, I think that we're getting kind of close to that. I mean, how often is it that you go to I remember when we first moved here on the East Coast, we came from the Midwest, and so from Cincinnati, you come to the East Coast, and that's shocking enough. Apparently, we wanted to keep going east, and now we're going to China. <laughs> but when we first moved here, I couldn't help myself. It was my, my, my Midwestern sensibilities, right? Hey, how's it going? I'm sorry? It's 2533. No, I know. I was just, 
Here's the money. Like, it's becoming more and more like that, isn't that? I think that the best thing that we can do to be countercultural right now is just to show people love. If the love of Christ exists in us, and if that exudes through us to the world, I mean, how much more countercultural can you be than just to love people? I've told you guys several times before, <laughs> one great book that I got to read, um, there was a statement in there. It was, the, the book is called Unchristian, and he said, unfortunately, Christians have become known for what they're against, not for what they're for. We've got to change that. We've got to change that. We have to figure out what it is that God is calling us to do for the people in our community, the people we work with, the people we live with. How can we love these people with a love that sometimes makes no sense whatsoever? Chesed. We also asked, are you willing to take risks? And what risks are you willing to take for the gospel? I, I realize that more and more it's becoming difficult to have these kind of conversations, especially because, you know, I mean, now it's getting to the point where if you ask somebody if they're going to church or what they believe, I mean, they report you to the manager, and all of a sudden now you have a conversation where you're getting written up just for mentioning something religious. What risks are you willing to take? Maybe you have a neighbor, I mean, and I'm not trying to, I mean, maybe they've got a rainbow flag out. I mean, maybe they're Muslim. Like, what does it matter? Like, I don't... Sheesh, now I'm going to start preaching. <laughs> Look, all, all I'm saying is, is that we, we have opportunities every day, every day, to be Christ, not to be like, but we can be Christ through the Holy Spirit that indwells in us for everyone around us. But sometimes you just got to take a risk. Sometimes you just have to step out in faith. You feel those tugs those, on those hearts. Like God is saying, just say something. They're crying. Look at them. Just say something. Are you willing to take those risks? And lastly, of course, given today in the context of what we read today, uh, the first question any of us would have to ask is, do you need a redeemer? Do you need to be redeemed today? Have you yet to make this commitment? Have you yet to accept the call of Christ in your life to become a disciple? Not just to get baptized. Remember, guys, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of our story as a disciple. It doesn't stop there. That's when it gets hard because that's when we become disciples and followers of Christ and that is hard to do sometimes. But I assure you this much and I can show you the scripture references. The reward is great. If not just the reward that we have in heaven, again, we don't do this out of selfish motivation, but even if the reward is just to develop a relationship with somebody and have them say to you, I can't believe you're a Christian. I've never been treated like this before. It's like, yeah, it's weird. It should happen more often. I don't have some kind of like win one for the Gipper speech. This is my last chance to address you guys. Um, just be the disciples that you were called to be. That's all I ask. That's all. That's all I ask as your brother in Christ. That's all, that's all we are asked of by Christ is to be disciples, to be the ones who represent Christ well to this world, to love without reason, to take risks, to show other people that they have a redeemer and they can be redeemed. It's been a joy and an honor to be on staff at this church. And um, I love you all. Um, and it's really crazy because the funny thing is, is as, I st as I stand here now, I look out and I think, who are you people? <laughs> and many of you are probably doing the same to me. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been on the stage. I haven't led worship uh, regular uh, full-time in six months, and so now that I'm not on stage, everybody just sees me in the lobby like, are we paying that guy? 
Um, it's been great. It's been fun. I, um, I am, I believe, fully the man I am today uh, because of the involvement and relationships I have with every person here, whether I know you well or not, whether you've um, contributed through prayer uh, or any other way to this ministry and to this church. You have enabled me to do something amazing for the last 12 years and to be part of something amazing. And um, now, now we're moving on. Now we're taking our next step. Um, and we would just ask that you continue to pray for us as we will do for y'all. Uh, one of the things that I think is really cool about the letters of Paul is the way he starts them. Oh, I've heard the great things that you guys are doing. That's, that's what I want. I, I want to read online uh, with secured wired internet. Um, <laughs> the, of the amazing things that are happening at the journey. And I want to be able to say, man, you guys, praise God. It's amazing what you're doing.